0: i hope you have an outline of the sermon uh, if you do not have an outline please raise your hand brother steve will make sure you get one everyone needs an outline take it this week if you will and let's do some studying this week if you do not have an outline take it this week and sit down and uh, enjoy uh this study uh, the introduction reads this way the seven miracles of john shows that jesus is who he claimed to be and that by believing we might have eternal life most of you know since the 24th of july we've been on this series we started with the seven signs of john and we went through each one of those signs and uh Just as it says, these seven miracles in John's gospel is powerful when it reveals who Jesus Christ is and that he is the Son of God. And then we have, following that, and I began this last Sunday, we have the seven I Am's. The seven I Am's. Uh, Their focus is on what happens after we become believers. In this study... We'll look at the seven I am statements to see what they will certainly tell us. After the feeding of the 5,000, and keep this in mind because that's where this scripture starts. After the feeding of the 5,000, some brought up the manna their forefathers had eaten in the wilderness in Exodus. It's recorded in Exodus, and that established the context for this statement. So you want to know why Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life? That was established after they asked concerning the forefathers that ate the manna in the wilderness. Uh, This remarkable miracle served as a life-sized illustration for a sermon that Jesus was about to preach. This great miracle of feeding, they say 5,000, there probably was a minimum of 20,000 people that jesus took five loaves and two fish broke that blessed that and fed all those thousands of people so keep that in mind as we read from john chapter 6 beginning with verse 30 therefore they said to him what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you what work will you do our fathers ate the manna in the desert As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Let me read that again. For the bread of heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world verse 34 then they said to him lord give us this bread always and jesus said i am the bread of life he who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst what a statement but i said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe verse 37 all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me i will by no means cast out for i have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me this is the will of the father who sent me and that of all has he has given me i shall not lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father? And they always went back on this. When there was something they didn't like what he said or something they disagreed with what he said, they would always say, hey, I, we know his mom and dad. We know his, his, his home. We know where he lived. We know all about him. He just, he's human just like we are. Not this is Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How is it that then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Keep that in mind. And I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Verse 46. Not that anyone who has seen the Father except he who is from God, He has seen the Father most assuredly. I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And then he makes this statement. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Father, add your blessings to the reading of your word. Speak it to our hearts. Give us ears to hear, hearts to understand. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Powerful, powerful scripture. I am the bread of life. This this was the first I am that Jesus mentioned. I want to go through these, if you will, follow uh, sort of hurriedly. And uh, because I've got two stories I want to tell. Two powerful stories that I want to tell. First of all, look at Roman numeral number one. Bread is a universal commodity. Bread is considered a staple food. It is a basic dietary item. Every country in the world has some form of bread. Bread has been found fossilized in many archaeological digs. In other words, they had bread in ancient times. Bread is this associated with life, health, nourishment, and prosperity. Roman numeral number two, bread in the Bible is a symbol of spiritual life. We don't want to lose the sight of that. We can think of bread as the natural bread, but not necessarily that's what he's speaking of here in this particular text. Bread in the Bible is a symbol of spiritual life. People have an inborn hunger for something, and that something is Jesus Christ. Hunger. Let me say here and now there is nothing that you can partake of in this life other than jesus christ that will satisfy you and the world has a lot to offer and a lot of people are partaking but the only thing that will satisfy us is christ the bread of life imparts life when it is eaten you say pastor you talking about me eating bread Jesus goes on, and I didn't read these in this chapter. He said, you've got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Now, certainly he's not talking about physical. He's talking about spiritual. Eating of the Word of God. Enjoying the Spirit of God. God's Word is the bread of life. God's Word is the food. food. How can one eat the flesh? Of the Son of Man and drink his blood. That's recorded in verse 53. One eats, notice, to help you understand, one eats of Jesus' flesh and drinks of his blood as he receives and digests the truth which Jesus taught. That's the reason it's so important to read the Bible. That's what we're doing, we're serving up God's word. And it's important that we digest, take it in, eat the Word of God, enjoy the Word of God, read the Word of God, learn the Word of God, live, certainly, the Word of God. The one who eats of the bread of life abides in Christ. In fact, it says here in uh, John 6 and 56, he who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me and I in him wow and that word abide is very important because God wants us not only to abide in him but he abides in us he lives in us Novus Roman numeral number three Christ satisfies you want to find the life that you've always wanted You want to live the life you've always wanted to live? Live the life of Jesus Christ. Take him in. Invite him into your relationship. Jesus Christ is the solution not only for our physical hunger, but also for our emotional, mental, and especially our spiritual hunger. Why is the world in the shape it's in? Why are people in the shape? Because they're feasting on junk food. They're feasting on those things that will not satisfy. We're trying to survive on what the world offers up. All of its pastries, all of its niceties. But nothing the world has to offer will satisfy your soul. That's the thing about this food I'm talking about. Oh, you can go to McDonald's or you can go to a restaurant and sit down and eat and you can be satisfied physically, but nothing will satisfy that soul until the spirit of God comes on the inside into the heart of man and then flows out the soul of man. That's where your emotions are. That's where your feelings are. That's where your desires are. Where? In the soul of man. Man is three parts made up of three parts. Man is spirit, soul, and body. And we're just working on the body. And sometimes we overwork on the body. And sometimes the body (laughs) gets big and we need to realize that that won't satisfy. Oh, it satisfies the physical hunger. But it doesn't satisfy the spiritual hunger. That real deep desire That is in mankind. And Jesus Christ says he has this to offer up to us. Our spiritual needs are far more important than our physical needs. The presence of physical hunger is intended to show us our limitations and drive us to God, but not for physical food, but for the words of God. And listen to this verse. I've read this verse many times, but it's never jumped out to me like this. Read Deuteronomy 8 and 3 with me. Watch what it says. So he humbled you, God Almighty humbled the children of Israel, humbles us. He humbled you, allowed you to hunger and feed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that you might make, that he rather, might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. But by every but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So it won't satisfy you. Eat all the cheeseburgers you want. Eat all the steaks you want. Sure, it will satisfy you physically. But man is feasting, as I said, on junk food today. Man is running to and fro, trying to find something that will satisfy that longing. You see, when man was created, there's a spot there that nothing can feel except the Spirit and the blessings of God. It's important. It is important this this wonderful wonderful blessings psalms 119 verse 50 it says this is my comfort in my affliction for your word has given me life you want life i want life really life it's sort of like being married there's a lot of people that are be that are married that they're not happy now don't raise your hand I see people all the time. They're married, but they're not happy. They're existing together. They live together. They talk, but they're not fulfilled. And I would encourage you, if you're not fulfilled in your relationship with, with your husband or wife, to be fulfilled. You say, Pastor, I want to be fulfilled in my relationship. Now, I'm taking a big detour, and I've, I've got something I really want to share, but I am want to do it because I just feel like doing this. Do you know how to be happy? in your marriage relationship there're two basic needs in every woman's life and if those two basic needs aren't met she's unhappy there's two basic needs in every man's life unless those two needs are met he's not happy it's very important, very important. Now, this is something that I learned many, many years ago, and I've certainly worked on it in my relationship. And the only person, listen to this, the only person that can feel, fulfill those two basic needs in that wife's life is her husband. Nobody else. Noah, she can have all kind of relationships she wants, but nobody else can do that. And the only person that can fulfill those two basic needs in that husband's life is his wife. Two basic needs. Let me start off with the husband, okay? The first basic need is to be Lord. Now, that'll just go way over your head if you don't think about it just a moment. I'm not talking about capital L. I'm talking about Lord. He needs to be number one in your life. The world puts him down. His job puts him down. But he can go home. And that wife can make him walk on cloud nine. Nobody else can make him feel the way that she makes him feel. If she honors him, respects him, not only, that's number one. Number two is to be worshiped. Now, don't leave yet before you hear me out, okay? I'm not talking about bowing down at his feet and polishing his shoes. I'm talking about saying, honey, you're the greatest. One of the worst things in the world. Oh, does she polish your shoes? God, goodness. James? Wow. You're going to make. She has got to say, honey, you're number one in my life. One of the hardest, worst things for a wife to say is I wish you were like Joe down the street or I wish you were like Joe at work or whoever it might be. Every man has ego. All of us. And we want to be number one, especially in the eyes of that wife so he can be put down, he can feel terrible, But if she respects him, honors him, and prays and lifts him up. Now, that's earned. That honor, that respect is earned. You're not going to go around making mistakes all the time and living like you want to and not earn that respect. So it's earned. But the two basic needs in every man's life is to be, certainly to be Lord, and certain, In fact, that's scriptural. Peter says that, that Sarah honored Abraham as Lord. Again, not capital letter, small letter L. Lordship and worship. Lordship and worship. Listen, that man. Now, there are, there are always exceptions to the rule, but that man will be fulfilled. The two basic needs In every woman's life, I'll share it with you next Sunday, okay? (laughs) No. I'll tell you today. In all of my 48 years pastoring, I have seen very few women, if the man provided these two basic needs in his wife's life, that she wouldn't do about anything in the world for him. Number one is to be loved. Not made love to. There's a big difference. To be loved. And you need to tell her. Amen. Guys have a hard time saying, honey, I love you. Now, I know some of you say to your wife several times a day, I love you. But I'm going to tell you, she needs to be shown love and she needs to be told she's loved. Five times in Ephesians. One chapter, it says, husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. One man came home one day, and his wife was laying across the bed crying. He goes into the bedroom and says, honey, what's the matter? She says, you never tell me you love me. He said, I told you 15 years ago, if there's any change, I'll let you know. Another man came home and he never told his wife he loved her, and he just came in and said, "Honey, I love you." Well, she couldn't under, I mean, it just tore her up. He didn't say that. hadn't said that alone. She goes, falls across the bed, and just cries, and she goes in, he goes and he comforts her and says, "What's wrong?" She said, "You told me you love me, but don't cry. I didn't mean it. <laughs> where is my sermon? What was I preaching on? Number one is to be loved. Number two, and this is important, guys, is security. Security. Many of a life today that is not secure. You might say, preacher, I buy all she needs. I give her a nice, have provide her a nice wardrobe and car and house. That's not what gives a woman security. There's a lot of women that has all of that that's very, very insecure. You know what gives a woman security? Trustworthiness. If she can trust you. Don't ever lie to her. Because if you do, it destroys that Trust. And there's a lot of people living together. They're not fulfilled. Those four things goes a long way in helping a couple that's married to be fulfilled. To be fulfilled. And there are a lot of people going to church and serving God. They're just not fulfilled because they're not enjoying that food that God has provided for them. That nourishment. There's nothing... The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How long has it been since you've sat down, enjoyed His work, just sat and just read it? Yeah. Sat in the Spirit of God, turned off all the stuff that you listen to. Read the Bible and take it in and let it bless you and strengthen you and nourish you. There is the living bread. It endures to eternal life. It gives life to the world. That living bread is none other than Jesus Christ. And then lastly I have here, it is a true bread. If there's a true bread, there's a false bread. The false bread is that that the enemy, listen, the world's got all kind of stuff to offer you, but it will not give you fulfillment. If I came, if you came to my house Now, my wife can cook good food. She fixed me a pumpkin pie yesterday that was scrumptious, delicious. And she can make good biscuits. She don't hardly ever cook biscuits anymore, though. (laughs) She don't have time. So if you came to my house and she had those nice, big, buttermilk biscuits. And I pa- and it was p- packed up on the plate, and I passed the plate around, and I said, I have one. Would you like to have one of these buttermilk biscuits? And you looked at me, and you smiled, and that was it. I'm saying, you don't want one of my buttermilk biscuits. My wife makes good buttermilk biscuits. But you just sit there and smiled. The important thing is that you reach out and take one of those biscuits. And Jesus is saying today, wouldn't you like my food? Wouldn't you like one of my buttermilk biscuits? Wouldn't you like peace? Wouldn't you like joy? And we sit there in the pew or we sit there where we are and we fail by faith to reach out and say, God, I want it. You see, the preacher can preach a good sermon, and we can hear some good music, and you can read some good scripture, and you can know all about. But if you don't, by faith, reach out and take it. It won't nourish your life and body. And you reach out by faith, and you take it. You reach out by faith and take it. Two stories. One from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. Two of the greatest stories that you will ever hear. Two of the greatest stories you'll ever hear. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, there's a great story. But let me back up a little bit and tell you about this man called Saul. Saul, Israel had never had a king. And so they desired a king and said, and God through Samuel said, okay, you can have a king. And Saul. Saul was a man's man. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was a big guy. He could have played for Duke Blue Devils, you know. He was a big fella. Uh, At first, he was a good king. And then things went from bad to worse. And It seemed like that Saul just simply got away from God. So God told Samuel, let's have, another, let's have another king. And he goes out to Jesse's house and he anoints the youngest son there, David, to be king over Israel. Saul continued to be king. David went into where Saul was and he became a servant to him and he ministered to Saul. He played the harp and did all kinds of things. The people fell in love with David and they began to recognize David more than even Saul and Saul became jealous. And so for years, listen to this, for years Saul tried to kill David. He ran him out in the desert in caves. David had to hide, hide, hide. He had about 300 men with him, David did. And they were constantly in peril. Saul tried to kill him. Saul had a young son. His name was Jonathan. And the fact about Jonathan, you see, Jonathan, Saul's son, was in line to the throne. But Jonathan loved David. In fact, the Bible says that David and Jonathan's heart were knit together. They really, really loved each other. And deep down in his heart, Jonathan knew that David would be king one day. But he still loved him. And he still protected him from his father Saul. There was a battle in Saul. And Jonathan both were killed the same day. But you see, Jonathan had a son. I love his name. His name was Mephibosheth. 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 He was five years old when Jonathan and Saul lost their life. He was five years old. It was his nurse, as the New King James called her, his, his nanny, took him, and he ran with, she ran with him, and she fell, and he was crippled in both feet. The Bible says the rest of his life, Mephibosheth. She took him to a place over in Gilead called Lodibar, Lodibar. Well, David, he conquered the enemy and became king of Israel. Now, policy was, and what happened, when a new king came on the scene, he killed all those in line for the throne. And but that, was, that was what happened back then. So all the king's sons and grandsons and all those that were in line for the throne they were killed. David didn't do that. Several of them were already dead. After being in a king for a while, David thought to himself, "I want to show kindness." to Saul's heritage. I want to show kindness to his children or grandchildren. And he began to ask around. There was a man there that had served under Saul, and he knew where Mephibosheth was. And he told David, he said, David, he's over in Lodabar. Lodabar means no pastor. It means the land of nothing. And that's where many people are. They're in the land of nothing. That's where they live. There's nothing to eat. No pastor. No, no life. He's just existing. And so David put the search out for Mephibosheth. At this time, Mephibosheth was married and had a son. And here he is in his house. And all of a sudden, there's a knock on his door. And they go to the door and it was David's servants. It was part of David's men. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine what's going through the mind of of Mephibosheth and his family? They know that he's there to take him and kill him. And so the people that came to Mephibosheth's house said, David wants to see you. Can you imagine the fear? Can you imagine what he thought was going to happen to him? And so they took him and his family. They brought his whole family from Gilead, Lodibar, back to Jerusalem. And David said this to him. Because of the covenant, I had with your father, Jonathan, I want to show you kindness. Wow, and he said I'm going to restore everything that your grandfather had the land I'm going to restore it back to you you're going to have plenty of land plenty of money but the important thing that he said to Mephibosheth the rest of your life you can put your feet under my table and you can eat my bread Many a person is living in the land of Lodabar, the land of nothing. They're barely getting by. Oh, they may be blessed physically, but spiritually they are they're dried up. They, they're hurting. They're lonely. They have no peace, no joy. And many of them think if, if, if I have to go to that church, I live a lifestyle that they're not going to agree with. I have habits that they're against. I live a life and they are going to hate me. And when you and I invite people to our church, no matter how they live, they may think, oh, they're going to kill me with words. They're going to be hateful to me. They're going to be narrow-minded fundamentalists. And all we're trying to do when we invite people to church is saying, I want to show you kindness. We're not here to judge you. We're here to introduce you to a man named Jesus. And when you accept him, you can take and put your feet under his table and you can eat his bread and be satisfied the rest of your life. One more brief story. Jesus in his three and a half years living, had 12 disciples. He invested in those men, he trusted those men, he taught those men, he discipled those men, and all of them pledged to Jesus, "We will never leave you." In fact, Peter said, "I will though all people deny you, I will never deny you." They came, they arrested Jesus, took him into custody. And off go to the disciples. They all run off. Guess what? They leave Jesus. Can you imagine how they felt? Talking, Peter talking to Matthew or Peter talking to Andrew or whoever. Can you imagine them talking? You know, we promised him that we would stick with him through thick and thin. And we, everyone ran off and left him. Jesus was crucified. Jesus rose the third day, and Jesus was alive. During that time, Peter looked at the other ones. He said, let's go back to our jobs. Let's go do what we did before we became a disciple of Jesus. Let's go fishing. They said, you know what? I'll go fishing with you. And the whole crew loaded up in the boat, and they went fishing. Wow. Jesus is gone. They don't know what they're going to do. Maybe they can go back to their profession and fish all over again. But they didn't catch anything. Boy, they, I can't imagine what was going on in their mind on that water. Can you imagine all that happened during that time? The trial, the beatings, the crowds, the jeering, the tr- everything that went on, the crucifixion, the barrel. And they're coming into the shore. And they see on the shore a fire. And they wonder, what's going on? And the closer they get, it seems like they recognize the man that's on the shore. And he stands up from the fire and from the meal that he's cooking. And he said, boys, have you caught anything? And they said, no, we Toiled all night. He said, cast your nets on the right side. You better watch out. I'm about to get happy with this one. Cast your nets. And when they did, they caught so many fish, they had to get other ships or boats to help them bring it in. Oh, did they catch a lot of flounder and perch or whatever they caught. It was a miracle. Then they looked and they said, "Wait a minute. I, bl- I I I believe that's Jesus. It is Jesus. And They could hear his voice coming across the waters. And he said, "Come and dine, boys. I got bread for you." You denied me. You ran off from me. And you think I'm going to criticize you and put you down. You've been weak. You failed. And the devil will tell you that the Jesus that you serve, when you fail and you hurt and you you don't do what you know he thinks you ought to do, then he's got you under his. But Jesus is saying, I'm not here to condemn you. I got a meal prepared for you. I don't know where he got that fish and that bread. It doesn't matter. But he had fish and bread. And they came. Oh, Peter, he had put his clothes on. Now, he wasn't naked. Somebody said Peter was. No, he wasn't. He had a tunic that he took on so he could fish. It encumbered him. And when he saw Jesus, he put that on, jumped in the water to go out and meet the one that said, come and dine. Come and be with me.